Today on the show, we have John Fetterman, mayor of Braddock, PA. I'm six foot eight, 375 pounds. I wear a work shirt every day because I would look ridiculous if I wore a suit and tie. <laughs> I mean, Braddock isn't that kind of a place. If you look at Silicon Valley today, it's wealthy. It has an immigration issue where you can't bring the people in fast enough. And that's what Braddock was, you know, early last century. Having recently announced his run for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman talks to us about how politics can be affected by the media. I never actively tried to cultivate media coverage. It just kind of found me. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening. So how's the campaign trail been going? It's really been great. We were in Harrisburg last night. We were in Chicago the day before. Uh, for the, in New York for the Pennsylvania Society uh, last weekend, heading to Allentown tomorrow, uh, back to Pittsburgh Sunday, Philadelphia on Monday. So it's, it's uh, all over the place, so, but it's great. Just to give you some background, this podcast is mainly focused on media, but I thought it would be great to kind of hear from your, your perspective. You have some unique branding and media experience as well as the videos that you've put together and social media presence. So we'll get into that a little bit later. This podcast is geared towards college students and people that are interested in media, but we'll also maybe try and hit some people that are interested in, in public policy as well. Think back to your early college days and what was your college experience like in general? What can you uh, well, I, my college experience in general was, was positive. I played football and I mean, I, I don't know how many, you know, college students today would recognize it. I, I had, and this, you know, I had a quote, sports walkman, <laughs> and, you know, like what's a walkman, right? You know, it's a cassette player, you know, that was portable at the time. And, um, it was much, a much different era where you didn't have the entire world of information at your fingertips. I know that you went to Harvard Policy School for your graduate degree. What did you study in, in your undergrad that, that got you to go to grad school? It wasn't my studies that got me interested in public policy. It was more of my life experiences that got me interested in public policy. I originally got into school for finance and business and have an MBA in finance and business, where that was initially how I thought my career was going to go. And then I had two really potent back-to-back life experiences that really altered my trajectory. And the first of which was I was 23 at the time. And my best friend was killed in a car accident on his way to pick me up to go to the gym. And out of that, and out of that kind of that shock and that, you know, wrestling with one's own mortality, I, I joined Big Brothers Big Sisters, and the little boy I was paired with, his uh, father just died from AIDS, and his mother was about to. So I suddenly realized what I wanted to do was fuse social work and business, you know, together with public policy. And, and that's really more than anything is what led me to go to school for public policy. So where did you think, when you went to Harvard Policy School, what was your goal, and where did you think you might have ended up at that point when you entered? Yeah, my, my goal there was to really just learn as much as I can. And, and you know, one of the, the, the real benefits of going to a school like, like Harvard is, you know, the plentiful nature of professors and people that are really working in the top of their field, like Ash Carter, uh, who's now Secretary of Defense, was on the faculty. David Gergen, you know, was a advisor to three or four presidents. You know, I had Alan Simpson, the former senator from Wyoming. So you had this real wealth of, of people that uh, had and were, you know, actually high-level practitioners. So, you know, just spending as much time getting to, to know uh, what they know. And one of my uh, great allies in my current campaign is a classmate that, that I met, you know, 15 years ago. So it's, it, you 
learn as much as you can and you uh, are open, at least I was, and I'm sure everybody else is, you're open to new ideas and, and new experiences. Before we get into your work in the community, I did want to ask you, um, because I've, I've heard two different pronunciations, um, and I want to hear it from you, what you think. Is, is it Braddock or Braddock? I, I am not the person to make the, the correction where, you know, I say Braddock, and, and uh, I don't know where that comes in the spectrum. <laughs> uh, some people are like Braddock, and some are like Braddock, you know, so it's <laughs> like there's a town right down uh, river, it's called Turtle Creek, and, and the, the, yeah, if you want to be authentic, they're like Turtle Creek, you know, so right, right. Yeah, it's, it, uh, you know, I, it's tomato, tomato, and, and uh, <laughs> I, I never want to wait on that one. I, I think that's safe. That's good. I met you when I was fresh out of college, and I got a job working at the Braddock Youth Project, uh-huh. and yeah. I worked there for, you know, four or five months helping the youth there to produce PSAs and teach them about video production. It was a surreal place to be. I think you had been there since 2001. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the the Braddock community? In order to really talk about it, you have to understand where Braddock started and what Braddock was. And, and, and it started as um, one of the most important communities in the country, believe it or not. Um, it, you know, I mean, Andrew Carnegie is still, I think, the richest person that's ever lived in relative scales, you know, mm-hmm. and he got his start in, my, in Braddock. I mean, you know, his steel mill, the Edgar Thompson, is, uh, was the first one, and now it's the last functioning steel mill. So if you look at San Francisco slash Silicon Valley today, it, it is ridiculously populous. It's, it's wealthy. It has uh, you know, an immigration issue where you can't bring the people in fast enough. And that's what Braddock was, you know, early last century, whereas like you can't bring the laborers in fast enough. There's four, you know, my town had 14 furniture stores in it at one point in time. I mean, amazing kind of density and, and such an important community. And, and then, it, and then it all got tore apart and, you know, Braddock lost 90% of its population and, and it, it created this community that was, barely recognizable to the ones that it, it used to be. And when I got there, it was kind of at the, you know, the, at the low point uh, where it was, you know, just, uh, it was striking, you know, the, the condition of it, it and how much has been lost and how much is gone. And, and uh, so, yeah, it, it uh, was a very stark landscape and, and um, it really, um, I don't know how, the, what's the best way to describe it other than the fact that, you could tell something really, really bad happened here when you, you, you arrive where it's like you could tell that this was a really prosperous place at one point in time, but, but it, it just was, uh, you know, just hit by forces, you know, that were certainly well beyond its control. Part of my job was to go around and, and film around the, the community. And I would just remember seeing this one really large house, like a three-story, five-bedroom mm-hmm. house that had been ripped from the side. And it looked yeah. like you're looking at a small dollhouse and, you know, the, the chest of drawers is sitting, waiting, oh, perched, yeah. almost yeah. to fall off. Braddock Avenue is the only site in the in America that I'm aware of where that originally it had a National Historic Landmark designation, the downtown, but they actually had to rescind it so that the buildings could be torn down because they were literally falling on uh, in the streets, like literally crumbling. Like, it's one thing to be run down, but it's an entirely another one that, like if you don't do something, the buildings will literally fall and, and hurt or kill people, and and that was the the, the place that that Braddock had had uh, slipped to. So, 
you leave Harvard Policy School, you join AmeriCorps, and you're doing some work in Braddock. When did you come up with a vision to, to try and run for mayor? Came came up with a vision for running for mayor is because I hit the limit of what a program director could accomplish. You know, I was running a GED program, I um, and a very successful one, and, and uh, you know, a necessary program, one that had, you know, really developed a lot of great outcomes. And I really found my work incredibly satisfying. I mean, that's really what I came there to do. But uh, a couple of young people in my, my program were, were gunned down um, in about, I don't know, within a three, four-week period of each other. And I, I was overtaken with this, like, I, you know, like, this has to change. Like, this, this can't go on. Um, and I can't do anything about that as a program director. Uh, so I was like, well, how can I change this? And I'm like, well, got to run for mayor. And that's, that's exactly how I did. And that's how I got into it. And you brought a lot of, um, artists into the community, community gardening. Artists are important to any community because they, they can see and conceptualize things that other people can't, and they can see value in things that other people can't. They can see different ways that other people can't. And they can embrace the different instead of, you know, seeking suburban conformity and and what have you. So uh, so artists are, are really a vital part of any community, and it's an especially important uh, aspect uh, or facet in a community that is trying to to build itself back up. Yeah, so it's been about ten years. I now live in Washington D.C., and I remember when you first started, your your big push was you just wanted a, a family restaurant or a subway to move in. Braddock was devoid of of just about everything that makes a town a town. And, you know, we've built ourselves back up now where, um, you know, we have uh, the best urgent care center in, in uh, Western PA uh, that takes Medicaid and Medicare. And, and everybody now has access to, to health care. Um, you know, we have a brewery open uh, about a year and a half ago, and now it's the best reviewed brewery in the Pittsburgh area online. And, and uh, 1,500 people came out to their food truck roundup. If somebody would have told me five years ago that there'd be a brew house in Braddock and 1,500 people would come out to eat from food trucks on a Saturday night, I never would have believed it. And that, But that is, that's exactly what happened. And now we have more and more small businesses trickling in. We've been able to save a bunch of, of the, the buildings and structures to create more and more spaces for people to move into. Um, uh, the, an old building, actually the building where I started my program, the Oringer building now is, uh, we're converting that into loft apartments and we're doing that with a private developer. Wow. The first time in 40 years that a private developer is, uh, you know, planning to open market rate housing in the community. So we still have a long way to go and that's never going to be finished. The work will never be done. It'll certainly out, outlast me, my life. But from where we were in 2001 to where we are heading into 2016, it's really been a dramatic shift. You're, a pretty larger than life character. And can you talk about that in reference to, to branding and, and creating an image and creating messaging for, for the community? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I never sought out to, to create a, a brand or an image. I, I, I wear work, I wear a work shirt every day because one, um, I, I think it will, uh, it just would, I would look ridiculous if I wore a suit and tie. <laughs> I mean, it, Braddock isn't that kind of a place, you know, it's, uh, it's it's very much a and always has been a, a work town a blue collar uh, town. I'm six foot eight, three hundred seventy five pounds. I have a shaved head and I have a, a kind of a, a chin beard and and uh, I have two two major tattoos. One is my town zip code on my one uh, left arm and then on my right arm are the dates of when people have been murdered in my town. They reflect both my commitment but also 
a visual legacy and reminder of a lot of the tragedy and the trauma that, that happened in communities like this. And really, for me, you know, one of the main impetuses behind wanting to stop it and, and stave it off. And, and you know, I, people ask me, you know, what, what are you most proud of? And, you know, and I would like, you know, we were talking about branding. It's like, well, as part of my brand, I would be like, I want to be the guy. And we went five and a half years without the loss of life in town. And we did it with without incurring any police complaints against civilians or any allegations of, of abuse or misconduct. And, and that's pretty remarkable. And uh, I think that's an important thing, especially in today's society, where you see Chicago, you see Ferguson, you see Baltimore, where, where that's a significant issue. So talking about media and politics, uh, I was recently at an event in D.C. where the media were interviewing top cabinet officials in the Obama administration. And they every first question was about Donald Trump. And then every if they evaded the question, every, the second question was about Donald Trump. And it, you could really see the sausage making that they were just trying to get somebody to say something. Can, can you talk a little bit about the the impact of, of media that you see in, in these um, in these elections and campaigns? Mike, my, my campaign sent out an email. Uh, it was a one sentence press release it said Donald Trump is a jag off. You know, um, and, uh, you know, I, I have no problem weighing in on someone like Donald Trump, who I don't take seriously as a candidate. And and he's an embarrassment as a human being. And But, you know, to take him seriously, you you, you run the risk of dignifying what is uh, a very undignified and, and unserious person. I mean, he's a buffoon. Um, so I can understand why people may not want to talk about him, but. I, I you know, prefer to call it like you see it, and and uh, <laughs> uh, and that's that's what my campaign did. In, in terms of media, you know, uh, the the bully pulpit is the one asset that the mayor of a small town like Braddock has, and if you're able to effectively leverage that and use that, and a way to get resources for your community is exposure through the media. Now, I never went out and deliberately set out to do that. I've never had a social media account. I've never had a Facebook page. I never set out press releases or anything like that. So I never actively tried to cultivate uh, media coverage. It just kind of found me. And um, I think it was a factor of um, the uniqueness of Braddock and, and quite frankly, the uniqueness of my appearance and kind of the story therein. So that, and that's how it kind of grew from, from there. I'm curious. I grew up in uh, Sheridan, which is a city neighborhood in Pittsburgh, uh, work, working class Irish family. Um, and it seems like the, the party has shifted a little bit away from kind of labor and, and that sort of thing, labor unions. I'm curious to know if you've talked to individuals, constituency that reacted favorably to things that uh, Donald Trump has said about immigration. And the or, people that, that have are the same people that would drive around with a Confederate flag license plate or, or like, I'm a, I'm an individual, damn it. You know, it just, there's no serious thought behind it. There's no serious intellectual rigor. It's, it's just reactionary silliness. And, and, uh, you know, everyone has this desire to, you know, I, I'm not politically correct and, you know, uh, damn it, I'm going to say it like it is. And, and, and that's kind of who he plugs into. And, and he'll say, well, let's ban all Muslims. And it's like, you know, an unthoughtful or bigoted person says, yeah, that sounds good to me. That's no more political correctness for me. And, and it just gets lumped into that. And it, it's very dangerous because there is there will always be a segment of the population that can be influenced by 
hateful or, or uh, incendiary rhetoric, and and he is a uh, omnidirectional sludge pump of it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. <laughs> just a couple more questions. Can you talk just a little bit about the campaign and and how it's been going and what what you see as the roadmap? The campaign has truly been uh, going wonderfully, um, and you know we're just getting out all across the state, like I said earlier. Um, we're going to start having debates and everything uh, in January when the race will really start heating up. And uh, I have no regrets, you know, zero. It's like if we win, we're able to get a bigger platform and we're able to take these issues to, to the next level. And if I don't, I'm still mayor of a town that I love with a job that I love and a family that I'm proud and lucky to have. So it, it's it's not a situation where like, oh, my God, if I don't win, what am I going to do? It's like, well, I'm going to be mayor of Braddock and it's uh, I'm sure it will always remain the best job that I ever had and and uh, uh, I'll never not count myself as darn lucky uh, to, to be in this position that I'm in. So I think I know the answer to this next question but when you look at your videos and your social media compared to your opponents um, it's very different and my, my question is is there any thought or since since you are going to be reaching out to people that may may not um, be in the same situation as people in Braddock, do you feel like you need to change your message, or how do you reach out to those other people? I think the message resonates because in Pennsylvania, you either live in a legacy city like Braddock, you used to live in a legacy city and <laughs> moved away, or you still have parents or family living in a legacy city. So I, I think everybody understands what my message is. It's, it's about building these places back up. It's, it's about saying, hey, let's not forget the old World War II veteran that served its country, and and let, let's make sure that we, we take care of and, and have dignity, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking. It's like, you know, Braddock gave so much. Now, is it anyone's best interest to let it just suffer and, 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 and unravel the way it did? It's like, well, of course not, you know? So, um, and, and so that that's a message that I think most people can relate to. I mean, I was at my campaign event last night, I had five people come up to me separately and say, you know, uh, I either used to live in Braddock or I had a relative that lived in Braddock and I love what you're doing. And it's like, and, and it just kind of confirms and affirms what I just said, where it's like in Pennsylvania, there's a lot of legacy cities and it's like people want to see these places preserved and they want to see these places prosper again. And, and uh, I wouldn't describe Braddock as prosperous yet, but it, it's, it's headed in the right direction. And, and, and that's, you know, I would say is one of the core reasons why I'm running. And, and, uh, I think that message actually really resonates with a lot of Pennsylvanians. What would you say to young people that want to get into public policy and do similar work to what you've done? I would just say, Hey, uh, jump on in. The water's great, you know, because, um, it, it's, it's, it's a field that needs young people. It's a field that needs different thinking. It's, it's a field that, um, shouldn't be dominated by, you know, old white guys, you know, and, and, uh, do what you love and, and try to manifest what your vision is. And it, it won't feel like work, uh, because it, it's something that you really believe in. And it's, it's such a, a great thing to be able to know that you're working to help produce better outcomes that would have otherwise not occurred if it wasn't for your involvement. And that's my goal for myself is to, if I'm able to, if I'm able to make a contribution or an impact, that's what I want to do with my life. And if the day comes that I'm not able to or my, the voters decide otherwise, then, you know, I can always go and, and go do something differently. But as long as I'm 
I can be of service. And that's what I would say to any young person is like, as long as you can be of service and it's compatible and congruent with your values as a person, I, I can't imagine a finer calling than to, to work in that arena. We were just talking about, you said when you first came to Braddock, your, your main goal was just the low-hanging fruit of getting a restaurant in town. What would be your first priority if you were elected? Uh, my first priority to, to today would be to, to see what we can get done and get it done. You know, it's a very divided political landscape out there, and, and it's the same philosophy. It's like, what, what's, what if any low-hanging fruit's out there? You know, can we have common-sense gun reform passed? Can we all agree that you can't live off of $7.45 an hour. Can we all agree that 100 out of 100 climate scientists believe that we're headed for a global catastrophe with climate change? Can we agree that the LGBT community deserves to have equal rights with the rest of us? Can we agree that uh, women deserve to earn as much as men do? Can we agree that you should be able to refinance your student loan debt the way you're able to refinance your mortgage? There's a lot of things that I don't understand why they're considered, quote unquote, progressive. It's not progressive to say you can't live off seven hours and 50 cents an hour. It's like it's a fact of life. I mean, mm -hmm. show me a person that's able to support themselves and their family on seven hours and 50 cents an hour. It doesn't exist. And, and so why do we pretend in society that that's enough? Like, why can't we just admit that everyone deserves a living wage? You know, why can't we just admit that it shouldn't be 71 degrees in the middle of December? Just these things that I would just describe as common sense in, instead of, of just, you know, a lot of nasty rhetoric. And, and uh, so I, I'm going after the low-hanging fruit, and I'm going to go for consensus. But in the absence of those, I'm going to push and push and push the same way I did in Braddock. Great. Well, thanks thanks so much for, for talking to me. And, and if you do get elected and make it to Washington, uh, I'll buy you a beer for sure. No, hey, uh, <laughs> I'm going to take you up on that, even though. I guess I'm not allowed to accept gifts, but you know I won't tell anybody if you don't. So I can at least take a beer, I guess. All right, thanks a lot. Hey, thank you for your interest. Conversations recorded at Arlington Independent Media. Follow me on facebook.com backslash media on the radio or join the conversation on Twitter at media on radio. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening.